0: It's that time of year again. There's a nip in the air, the holidays are in full swing, and you are halfway through another academic year. And that means Absite 2022 is right around the corner. Fear not, Behind the Knife has got you covered. We've got over 28 high-yield Absite review episodes and our trusty companion book available on Amazon. Everything you need to dominate the site. Don't forget to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org where you can easily access all of our
1: podcasts and videos register for free CME, and sign up for the BTK newsletter. And be sure to keep an eye out for our comprehensive oral board review material,
0: which is due out in early 2022. If you appreciate what we're doing here at Behind the Knife, please leave us a five-star review. Now, take a deep breath. You've got this.
2: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. Uh, Today, we're covering the topic on breast.
1: Uh, We cover everything from cancer to infections in this episode, Uh, so it should be really good and high-yield information for you.
0: Alright, let's jump right into our breast absite review. Uh, this is uh, we've got a lot of requests to do breast and this is a very very high yield topic. So let's go through it. Um so let's start with some high yield anatomy. So woo. Um uh, something that's asked often is the axillary nodal basins. There's three levels, level 1, 2 and 3.
2: What are the three levels of the axillary nodes? Level 1 is lateral to the pec minor, level 2 is underneath the pec minor. And level three is medial to the pec minor. So again, all in relationship to the pectoralis minor muscle.
0: Yep. Lateral to medial. So level one is the most lateral. Level two is under the pec and then high up in the axilla. And medial to the pec minor is level three. Um, let's talk about some nerves. Uh, so Kevin, there are some important nerves you need to know surgically, specifically when doing things like an axillary dissection. Uh, so can you walk us through the major nerves you need to know uh, and what they, what they innervate and then what the deficit is?
1: Yes, this is a 100% chance of getting this on the absite. Uh So the first nerve uh, that we talk about most commonly, the long thoracic, it, this uh, innervates the serratus anterior, and this will give you a winged scapula. The second one is the intercostal brachial nerve. Uh, this is the cutaneous branch of the second intercostal. Uh, you'll get loss of the sensation to the medial arm. The next nerve is the thoracodorsal nerve. This supplies latissimus dorsi, and you'll have weak arm adduction, the next nerve is the medial pectoral nerve. This, is, uh, this supplies the pec major and minor. And finally, the lateral pectoral nerve, and this only supplies the pec minor. Yeah, so
0: a lot to unpack there, but say, woo, which of those is the most common?
2: So the most common injury is to the intercostobrachial nerve.
0: Right. Most common nerve injury with axillary dissection is intercostal brachial, which is a cutaneous branch of the second intercostal. You'll get some loss of sensation to the medial arm. Um, again, long thoracic thoracodorsal often mixed up, long thoracic serratus anterior, your wing scapula, uh, thoracodorsal latissimus dorsi, and that's weak arm adduction, ADduction. Um, and then they often ask what, uh, they like to trip you up with the lateral and medial pectoral nerve, which innervates both the major and minor, which only does the minor. The medial pectoral nerve, it starts with an M, capital M. It's major and minor, uh, whereas the lateral is a pec minor. Okay, how about, uh, uh, Kevin, keep going. How about the uh, blood supply to the breast?
1: So the blood supply, you have the uh, internal mammary, uh, the intercostals, the thoracoacromial artery, and the lateral thoracic artery. Okay. Woo. Um, so a lot of times what
0: we'll see is um, they'll give you the BI-RADS classification for breast mammography or breast imaging. Um, we have. Uh, can you walk us through what the different BI-RADS are and what the question will be is what does this patient need? So um, whether they need a biopsy, whether they need further imaging, whether they need nothing. So BI-RADS one through five, walk us through what that means and what the recommendation is.
2: Yeah, so actually uh, there is a potential that you could also see a bi 0 and a bi 6, just be aware of that. Uh 0 being there's not enough information and 6 being a confirmed diagnosis of malignancy. Good. Uh however, in the in most of the questions you're you're most likely to see 1 through 5 and the key is to know what to do next with that classification. So if you see 1 or 2, the next step is going to be just routine screening, you don't change your management. Uh, for bi 3, though, you decrease the screening interval to uh, six months, repeat imaging. Uh, and for bi 4 and 5, you have to biopsy and get further tissue analysis. Right. Again, 1 and 2, 1 being normal, 2 being uh, a benign lesion,
0: routine screening is all those patients need. For bi 3, repeat imaging in six months, 4 and 5 need a biopsy. Perfect. Uh, so something that is often referred, uh, to clinic and uh, you may see is nipple discharge. Kevin, tell us a little bit about nipple discharge and how you want to manage that.
1: Right. So very common, uh, but cancer is rarely associated with it, uh, uh, about 3% of patients with nipple discharge will uh, later be diagnosed with cancer. That is if they're under 40 years old. However, a patient that is older uh, presents in the 6th decade of life or older and they have nipple discharge, you need to have a much higher suspicion. Uh, they will ha- they have up to a third, uh, 33% chance of having cancer associated with their nipple discharge. And what are some uh, characteristics uh,
0: of the discharge itself that would put you in a statistically higher risk of uh, malignant
1: pathology? Definitely. So, bloody Discharge, spontaneous discharge, uh, persistent discharge doesn't get better after a week on of just observing, Uh, unilateral discharge, all of these are statistically higher risk for malignant pathology.
0: Okay, and what are some? What can you do to from there? Let's say you have one of those characteristics. What should be the next steps?
1: So you always want to start with imaging. You want to have mammography um, because that can help identify uh, any. Intra breast lesions, but then is specifically for the duct. You can do you can check the ductal fluid cytology. You can do ductography and ductoscopy in um, diagnosis, but these aren't that helpful. So if, uh, many times you end up doing a duct excision. Uh, with this provides the best means of diagnosis of the underlying pathology. Yeah, exactly.
0: So there's you'll see those things out there, the cytology, duct- ductography, uh, ductoscopy, um but really those are minimally useful. So for if you have those concerning, you know, bloody discharge, spontaneous discharge, unilateral discharge, the most likely uh, those patients going for a duct excision uh to diagnose the underlying pathology. Um and still the majority of these are benign, but what's the most common cause of a bloody nipple discharge?
2: That would be an intraductal papilloma.
0: Great. Okay. So next, let's move on to some breast lesions. So let's talk first about uh, fibroadenoma and phyloides tumor. So Wu, uh, how do did, how did these present?
2: Yeah. So both these generally tend to present with a dominant mass. Uh, and so with any dominant mass, if you have a, a younger patient, so let's less than 35 years of age, you're going to want to do uh, an ultrasound. And if they're over 35, uh, you're going to also do a mammography. Um If the findings of this are consistent with a benign fibroadenoma and the patient has no risk factors, then it's okay to watch with biannual ultrasound, so every six months. Uh, If there's any uncertainty, though, you really need to do a core needle biopsy, and some people would actually argue that any dominant mass needs a core needle biopsy.
0: Yeah, that's a common presentation. Uh, you know, a woman is referred with with a lump in her breast or f- finds one on self-exam. Uh, a lot of times the question is what to do next, and you want to look at the patient's age. So less than 35 will get an ultrasound, greater than 35 uh, need mammography. And, and why why is mammography not great on young women, Wu?
2: So generally, young women tend to have dense breast tissue, and because of that, mammography uh, is less sensitive.
0: Yeah, um, I think most of these, like if, if it's very clinically consistent with a benign fibroadenoma and all the imaging kind of matches up, um, and the woman has absolutely no risk factors. then like you say, it is okay to watch that, um, if they're under 35, um, I think a large majority of these are probably going to get some form of biopsy and that's okay too, especially if, if the person doesn't, is anxious about it, doesn't want to live with it, that
2: type of thing. Um, how about if it's a cyst, what do you want to do with a cyst if you see that on your ultrasound? Then you want to see if that ultrasound aspiration was bloody or if it happens to be recurrent. If those are the case, then you want to send for cytology. Okay. Uh,
0: And tell me about uh, phyloides tumor. Um, Let's say you get a biopsy or, you know, it comes back as phyloides tumor. How do you want to treat that?
2: Yeah. So if you see phyloides tumor, you just got to remember that a phyloides tumor does have malignant potential. And so you're going to do a wide local excision with one centimeter margins. The malignancy rate is actually higher if they have uh, greater than five mitoses per high field, And phyloides tumor rarely does have hematogenous metastases. Uh, it does not generally go to the nodes. So you don't need to do a sentinel node or ax dissection.
0: Yeah, I, I tend to think of these more like behaving kind of like a sarcoma. Uh, so wide local excision, uh, generally one centimeter margins. Uh, if they do spread, which is rare, it's rare for them to metastasize. If they do, it spreads uh, um, in the blood and does not go to nodes. So you do not need an axillary section with these. Um, okay, uh, Kevin, talk to me about something we hear a lot about, and for some reason it confused me for a long time. But a radial scar. What is a radial scar, and and how do you how do you manage that?
2: Right.
1: So uh, very common. Uh, you'll see. Another name for this is sclerosine papillary proliferations or benign sclerosine ductal proliferation. So don't let those names confuse you. Uh, They're all uh, another name for radial scar. Uh, So the mammographic appearance can be uh, concerning because it can have calcifications and look like a small invasive cancer. Um, But they only have a small increased risk of cancer if the patient does have a radial scar. Um, If you do diagnose a radial scar, you do need to do a biopsy to rule out invasive cancer.
0: Yeah, and a lot of times that's a question that they'll ask too is they'll give you a, a list of lesions and they'll say which of these you know, requires a biopsy, which of these don't. Um, and we'll go into that, uh, some other lesions that definitely need biopsy. But radial scar is definitely one of those that has malignant potential and will need uh, will need biopsy. Um, next, let's just cover real quick, uh, we're talking about breast lesions, breast abscesses. There's not a whole lot to talk about. As abscesses anywhere in the body, the treatment is drainage. Um, Kevin, what's the most common organism with the breast abscess?
1: So these will generally be granular positive. Positive uh, and Staph aureus is the most common. Okay, perfect.
0: Okay, with that, let's jump right into the meat of things. So, we're going to dive right into breast cancer. It's a big topic, um, but it's certainly one of those things every general surgeon needs to know. It's something that's heavily tested and it's something that's constantly changing. So, it's hard to keep up with. Uh, so, Wu, uh, let's talk first about some risk factors. First off, let's, let's go over some of the hereditary disorders that increase a woman's risk for breast cancer. Um, can you name off some hereditary disorders that increase breast cancer risk?
2: Yeah, so there's BRCA1 and 2. There's Li-Frameni, and that's a P53 mutation. There's a Cowden syndrome, which is a P10 mutation. Uh, there's putz which is a STK11 mutation. And there's also a CDH1. Uh, which is associated with gastric
0: cancer. Yeah, gastric cancer and breast cancer, CDH1. That's one of the newer ones that I've seen pop-ups, um, you know, several times in, in a test or a practice test type situation. Uh, but the big ones, obviously, are BRCA1, BRCA2. What? How much does that increase a woman's risk of breast cancer, Kevin?
1: So it's a 10 to 20-fold increased risk of breast cancer. So they have a 30 to 60% chance of having breast cancer by the age of 60.
0: Yep. So those are your big ones. Those are the big ones they like to ask. Um, when, it, when we talk about other risk factors for breast cancer, there's, there's uh, several different models out there. Probably the most known one um, is the Gale model. Um, and that's the one that's likely uh, to be asked. Uh, so what is the Gale model and what goes into it, Kevin,
1: So this calculates a woman's risk of developing breast cancer within the next five years and within her lifetime. The components of this are age, age at menarche, age at the time of the first child that was born, family history of breast cancer, specifically mother, sister, daughter, uh number of past breast biopsies, number of breast biopsies showing atypical hyperplasia, the race and ethnicity, and that completes the uh,
0: yeah so those are just good you don't really necessarily have to memorize it's you know it's a, a probability score that that it comes up that gives you a percentage it can be useful in you know counseling patients at what the risk for breast cancer is when they're trying to decide you know what surgical procedure whether or not they want to undergo surgery those type of things um, and those are all things that I kind of think about when I'm seeing a breast cancer patient things I need to ask things I need to that needs to be in the history and physical um, obviously you're not sitting there calculating the person's Gale model score in your head, uh, but knowing it will help you remember what the risk factors for breast cancer are. What's important to know is that Gale model underestimates the risk for patients who have a personal history of of cancer. Um, or DCIS, LCIS, as well as anybody with a strong family history or a bracket gene. Um, it underestimates risk for those patients. So it's not good for, uh, patients with those types of histories. Um, so, woo, let's move on. Let's start talking about uh, management of different uh, kinds of carcinomas, carcinoma in situ. So DCIS, um, how do you want to treat
2: that? Yeah. So DCIS is a pre-malignant lesion. Uh, the treatment for it would be lumpectomy with radiation as well as hormonal therapy if they are, uh, hormone receptor positive. Okay. What if, what if the woman's, uh, they say the woman's postmenopausal? Yeah. So in that case, instead of using tamoxifen, like for a premenopausal woman, you would use an aromatase inhibitor. Great. So breast conservation
0: therapy, which is lumpectomy with uh, uh, with radiation therapy, as well as hormone receptor therapy if they're ERPR positive, and that's tamoxifen. That's typically for five years. If a woman's postmenopausal, uh, you go to your aromatase I- inhibitors. Um, are there any patients where um, mastectomy is an option?
2: Yeah. So you might consider mastectomy if the patient has a large lesion, has multi-quadrant disease, uh, or has any contraindication to uh, post-op radiation Uh, So when you're doing a mastectomy, the big thing though is you you want to consider a sentinel lymph node biopsy if performing the mastectomy for DCIS is up to 25% of DCIS. Uh, may show an invasive component on the final pathology. Great,
0: and that's how it's going to show up: is that it's it's a patient that's going to undergo a mastectomy for DCIS. Normally, you would not have to evaluate the lymph nodes with DCIS, but if you're doing a mastectomy, uh, you kind of and then that gets upstaged to an invasive c- cancer. You've kind of composed yourself for that sentinel lymph node. Um, you've disrupted disrupted all lymphatic channels. So if you're doing a mastectomy for DCIS, for any of those reasons you mentioned, you want to consider doing uh, a sentinel lymph node. Uh, Kevin, what kind of margins do you need for DCIS?
1: So. The general understanding I have for margins of DCIS is you actually need a two millimeter margin. Uh, the reason that this differs from invasive ductal cancer versus, uh, DCIS is because in invasive ductal cancer, you just need a negative ink at the tumor specimen. But for DCIS, it spreads along the basement membrane. And so can be kind of contiguous. Uh, and that, so you need a larger margin to confirm that there's no further DCIS spreading along that basement membrane. So I would go with two millimeter margins.
0: Yeah, this is one of those areas that's kind of controversial. Um, so it's probably unlikely to show up on the outside. The the official, the NCCN guidelines say you need at least a one millimeter margin. Uh, but like you say, the margins for funny enough, the margins for DCIS are a little bit more controversial than the margins for invasive cancer. Um, how about, uh, how do you counsel your patients for post op breast radiation? What's survival of mastectomy versus breast conservation? What does adding radiation to breast conservation do for the patient?
1: So it's very important uh, to have this discussion because it's a a big difference. Post-op whole breast radiation after a lumpectomy for DCIS will decrease the risk of recurrence by 50%, uh, though in the long-term studies has not shown an impact on overall survival.
0: Right. And when you're counseling, you you want to say, you know, you want to tell them mastectomy versus breast conservation has equal survival rates. There is an increased risk of recurrence with breast conservation, but the overall survival is the same. Adding radiation, like you say, reduces that um, risk of recurrence by 50 percent, but does not affect the overall survival. Woo. Okay, so LCIS. How is LCIS different than DCIS?
2: Yeah, so LCIS is not a pre-malignant lesion, uh, and it marks increased risk of cancer development in both breasts. Right. So, this is not a pre malignant con- condition, but it does increase the risk of
0: cancer in both breasts. And this is one of those things, if it comes back in core needle biopsy, you need an excisional biopsy. So, so far, we've, go under, under, uh, we've um, gone over radial scar, DCIS, LCIS. Those are all things, if you get those back on your core needle, you need to do an excisional biopsy.
2: Um, uh, what's the treatment for LCIS? So, this is somewhat controversial, uh, but generally, you're going to want to do a wire localized excision Uh, to rule out an invasive component or DCIS. Okay, so let's say you do that. You do your wire localized excision and
0: you're at tumor board and the pathology comes back with you have a positive, part, no invasive component, no DCIS, but you have a positive margin on your LCIS. Um, How do you want to manage that patient?
2: At that point, you're surgically complete.
0: You surgical yeah you're surgical complete you don't need uh, in the in the you're surgically complete in the in the sense that you don't need negative margins, but then how, what do you want to counsel that patient for the risk of breast cancer and
2: uh, what the next steps are right so the patient is at risk of developing bilateral uh, lesions and this would generally be a ductal cancer yes
0: exactly and and uh, Kevin, do you know what that risk is?
1: So, yeah, LCIS puts patients at a, at a higher risk of cancer over their lifetime. I think they say it's a half percent per year uh, increased risk. So if you, you know, for tw- the next 20 years, you'd have a 10 percent increased risk of breast cancer. Right. So
0: that's not insignificant. So those patients are at a half percent per year risk of developing an invasive cancer. So that's when you have to get into discussions of prophylactic bilateral mastectomy. And, and really, that's an individualized discussion with the patient. Um, okay. So but
1: I think it's important to talk about, um, hormonal therapy for these patients. Uh, you know, many of these patients will benefit, uh, from hormonal therapy to reduce their risks.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Depending on the receptor status of their lesion. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Um, that's an, that's also an area of, uh, ongoing research, um, is the hormonal therapy for, for these, uh, carcinoma in and so, LCIS?
1: So my answer on the ab site would be no further surgery, but you know, send the patient for consideration for hormonal therapy.
0: Yeah, I think that would be safe. Uh, okay, moving right into invasive uh, breast cancer. Um, so let's go through. This is one of those ones uh, where you have to know the staging. So there's lots of nuances and substages. Um, but Ke- Kevin, how do you want to just break down the TNM? What's well, a good way of breaking it down, thinking about it for the abside?
1: Yeah. So a must know, unfortunately, T1, zero to two centimeters. T2, two to five centimeters t3 greater than five centimeters and then if it is invading the chest wall or skin involvement you now have a t4 tumor great zero to two two
0: to five greater than five and then invasive invasion in the chest wall or skin now how about if it invades into the pec major muscle is that considered chest wall invasion
1: no it's not all right what about your nodal staging <clears throat> so yeah for the nodal staging one to three nodes is in one uh, four to nine nodes is N2. And then if there's 10 or more nodes um, or supra or infraclavicular nodes, you have an N3 disease. Okay. And uh, your M staging is always my favorite. Your favorite. Uh, distal METS is M1.
0: Okay. So we have that. Now, uh, Woo, how do you want to break that down? So that's our TN. And, and that's a good you know way of breaking down the T, N, and M that I think is not overly complicated and good enough for the boards. How about the staging?
2: Yes, stage 1, so think of a small tumor that has no nodes, so a T1, N0, M0. For stage 2, think of a larger tumor or having minor nodal involvement. So T3, N0 or T2, N1. Again, N1 being 1 to 3 nodes. So for stage 3, this is broken up into 3A, 3B, and 3C. For 3A and 3B, there's local invasion or more nodes. So think of your T4, N0 or your T3, N2. And uniquely, there's a stage 3C, and for that, think of any clavicular nodes. So for this, you can have any T stage, but it's going to be N3 disease. And stage 4 would be any distant metastasis.
0: Yeah, this is unfortunately one of those ones where it's kind of getting in the weeds there, the 3A, 3BC. But as you'll see here in a minute, that does make some real management decisions. So anytime there's a distinction that, that is a branch point for management, you need to know it. So we need to know that 3A, 3B, 3C, unfortunately, when it comes into guiding our treatment. Um, okay. So treatment. So Kevin, how about your early stages? Um,
1: stages, stage one and two. So stage one and two breast cancer, so to review, that would be small tumors with no nodes or larger tumors uh, with minor node involvement. Uh, For these patients, you can generally do surgery first, followed by adjuvant chemo and RADS if it's indicated. So primarily, uh, we are doing breast conservation therapy now. So for a small tumor, the patient can undergo a lumpectomy and whole breast radiation uh which would be considered equivalent to a mastectomy.
0: Yep, so a survival is survival equivalent to mastectomy. So st- early stage 1 2 surgery first, uh, generally lumpectomy, whole breast radiation, and then you, you add on depending on your findings, you'll have adjuvant chemo, adjuvant uh hormone therapy. Uh what are some uh uh contraindications to the going with the breast breast conservation route?
1: So all patients that have breast conservation therapy are going to require uh, radiation uh, after. So any patient that is not a candidate for radiation cannot undergo breast conservation therapy. So patients that are pregnant and would require radiation during their pregnancy would be an absolute contraindication. If they have multicentric disease, uh, this would be a contraindication. And then uh, positive pathologic margins after re-excision would be a contraindication to breast conservation therapy. Uh, then there's some more relative risks to Uh, I'm sorry relative contraindications to breast conservation therapy and this would be a patient that said previous radiation because now they're not a candidate for for further radiation or if they have any active connective tissue diseases such as scleroderma Uh, and then if the tumor is greater than 5 centimeters uh, they would fall outside of being able to undergo breast conservation therapy
0: yeah I think the big ones are I mean there's important caveat there obviously not all pregnant patients it's just pregnant patients that would require radiation during the pregnancy so those early trimester pregnancies most common ones you're going to see are that multi Centric disease um, or, you know, patients, if they have a positive margin on the first excision and they have a re-excision, they still have positive margins. Those patients are no longer candidates for breast conservation therapy. Um, okay. Uh, woo. let's move on to some more advanced. So let's talk about locally advanced operable tumors. So we're talking about, you know, your stage 3A. So review for, for us, what's stage 3A again?
2: So stage 3A is local invasion or more nodes. So think of your T4N0 uh again T four being involvement of chest wall or skin and uh either that or T three N two. And T three again was greater than five centimeters in size, N two was uh four to nine lymph nodes. Okay. So yeah, we'll 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 lump this into that category, it's hard
0: for me to think about, you know, you know, stage three A, three B, three C. But if I think about locally advanced operable tumors, so they're tumors that are resectable but they're locally advanced. How do you want to manage approach those patients?
2: Yeah. So for these patients, you're going to either do surgery first or think about doing neoadjuvant therapy for downstaging, uh, depending on individual patient and tumor factors.
0: Okay. So yeah, these are, these are the patients that may fall into that neoadjuvant th- uh, therapy, uh, you know, depending on, you know, maybe the tumor is large and the patient wants to undergo breast conservation therapy. Maybe you can downstage that tumor and make that patient who would, would have been a, you know, a, mat- a mastectomy, uh, now a candidate for breast conservation therapy. Um, Okay. Well, how about locally advanced inoperable tumors? So these are really your stage 3B, 3C uh, patients. Um, So these are patients who kind of have more extensive nodal involvement. Um, uh, How do you want to handle those patients?
2: Yeah. And again, remember that 3C was the clavicular nodes. Uh, So for these patients, locally advanced inoperable tumors, you're going to do neoadjuvant therapy first, and uh down and try to downstage that and it, uh, and then you can do surgery if the patient responds to this
0: Okay. And Kevin, easy one, uh, stage four disease, how, what, how do you manage those patients? Uh, primary chemotherapy. Okay. Uh, let's talk a little bit about ax- surgical axillary staging. So uh, w- this is something that has changed recently. It's certainly changed since my time taking the boards. Um, the answer has changed. So Kevin, surgical axillary staging, um, how do you
1: want to approach that for invasive carcinomas? So all patients that have invasive tumors need to have a sentinel lymph node biopsy. So, sentinel lymph node uh,
0: indicated for all all invasive tumors. Okay. Um, And we should also say that those are clinically uh, – whose patients whose axilla are clinically negative because if they have a clinically positive axilla, what are they getting?
1: they're going to get a modified radical mastectomy. Or
0: they're going to get an axillary dissection of some form or another. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, talk to me about the Z11 trial because the Z11 trial has gotten a lot. Of, we, we had a podcast covering this uh, and it's it's so clinically relevant that it will show up on the boards. Um, so what is the the Z11 trial and
1: why is it important? So this was comparing patients with small tumors and small uh, amount of axillary disease to whether they need an axillary dissection or whether the radiation can treat their axilla adequately. So this was patients that were greater than 18 and had T1 or T2 tumors, so less than five centimeters, and they had fewer than three positive sentinel lymph nodes, and they underwent breast conservation therapy with whole breast radiation. So- What did it show? This was a randomized trial, so some of them went by our previous treatment, which was if they had a positive sentinel lymph node, they went and got a axillary dissection. The other group of them only had the whole breast radiation, which treats the axilla. And what they found was that there's no difference in local recurrence, disease-free survival, and overall survival at a median follow-up of six point three years.
0: Yeah, so this is this is going to be this is a big one. So again, this is because uh, because axillary dissection is 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 a decently morbid procedure, you know, the question is, can we get away with less? So we looked at sentinel lymph node resection alone versus axillary lymph nodes. And again, women who are over 18, small tumors, T1, T2, and had fewer than three positive uh, nodes on their sentinel lymph nodes. So you have to get three nodes during your sentinel lymph node uh, harvest in order for to, to qualify for this. And those patients um, were undergoing breast conservation therapy where they all got whole breast radiation. Uh, so the way this is going to show up is they're going to give you a woman with a small invasive cancer. It's, you know, it's one to two centimeters. You do your, your lumpectomy and your central node and they'll say, and it's a woman who's 18, no risk factors, that type of thing. Um, one of the nodes come back positive and the question is going to be what's going to be next. It's going to be, do you do an axillary dissection? Do they get post uh, postoperative radiation and hormonal therapy, uh, plus or minus chemo, depending on the size of the tumor. Um, and, uh, the, that's what the, the answer is going to be is, 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 you're okay just con- doing the breast conservation therapy with whole breast radiation, uh, for fewer than three positive nodes in those
1: patients. Um, who does need, uh, a, uh, axillary dissection? So level one and level two axillary dissection is recommended for patients that have clinically positive nodes confirmed by FNA or core needle biopsy or, uh, sentinel nodes that were not identified. Yeah, so uh, so clinically
0: positive nodes. Um, and generally, those will get confirmed with an ultrasound and FNA or core needle that they are positive. Those patients get an axillary dissection. But let's say you're doing your sentinel lymph node and you, you do your blue ink, you do your radio tracer, and you can't find you can't find any nodes. Right. Those are the patients
1: also are, uh, need a level 1, 2 axillary dissection. Um, and, I, and I think it's important if they give you a choice, if you have a patient that you're evaluating in your clinic and they have palpable nodes, I think you, you're you going to choose the answer of you're going to confirm this, that those nodes have cancer in them with an ultrasound, an FNA, or core needle biopsy. Yeah, I think so. I think uh, these days uh, that is that is the right answer, um, if that's an option for you. Um, and one other point I just want to point out is For breast cancer, it's a level 1 and level 2 axillary lymph node dissection, and you do not do a level 3 axillary lymph node dissection
0: yeah uh so what is why are you making that distinction why, what what how else does that show up on the upside?
1: So they'll give you a melanoma uh, that has a positive sentinel lymph node and that patient needs levels one absolutely two, don't
0: choose a level one two because they'll give you that as an option a level one two dissection for melanoma they'll need a three level axillary dissection okay We we've been talking you know breast conservation therapy we've mentioned a few times you know you know patients uh, it plus or minus chemotherapy for for, for these invasive cancers um, but who gets uh, chemotherapy? with an invasive breast cancer?
2: Yeah, this is a complicated question. Uh, in reality, there's going to be a discussion based on individual risk of relapse, predicted uh, sensitivity to a particular treatment based on oncotyping, all that. But for the app site, you're going to give chemotherapy for tumors greater than one centimeter, positive nodes, or triple negative nodes. The one caveat to that is in hormone receptor positive patients that have node negative tumors with favorable oncotype, uh, in those patients, post op hormonal therapy alone is an option, and you might be able to get away without chemotherapy.
0: Yeah, this question is getting more and more complex as we as we get into these different oncotyping things, and it's like I said, it's really a, a tumor board discussion: who gets chemotherapy or not. But like you say, for the absite, for the boards, at this point, what I would know is tumors greater than one centimeter, positive nodes, or triple negative tumors all get chemotherapy. Uh, and and we, what do I mean? What do we mean when we say triple ther- or triple negative tumors?
2: ER, PR, HER2 are all negative.
0: Yep. Yep. Like those, those are we know those to be typically more aggressive. Uh, they, they're not eligible for
1: the 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 adju- adjuvant therapies, the hormone, all the herceptin, those type of things. And uh, they're generally found in the younger patients, like the eighteen year old breast cancer Absolutely. patient that you started this with. Yeah.
0: Um Okay, so uh, chemotherapy, uh, Kevin. What would be like for the boards? What's your regimen, your chemotherapy regimen?
1: Right. So just stick with tac, t a c. So you have your taxanes. Your adriamycin, or also called doxorubicin, and cyclophosphamide. Yeah, again, this is a very complex topic
0: that we're not going to get into for the boards. This is what I would know. This would be my uh, my regimen of choice. I would reach to uh, something that's commonly tested are the side effects of these different things. So, real quick, Kevin, uh, side effects of uh, of a, the taxanes, the doxitaxel? Uh That would be peripheral neuropathy. Peripheral neuropathy for the taxanes, adriamycin, or doxorubicin. Cardiomyopathy. Cardiomyopathy. Um, and uh, cyclophosphamide? Hemorrhagic cystitis. Yep. And what do you give for uh, the hemorrhag- to reduce the risk of hemorrhagic cystitis with cyclophosphamide? Mesna. Mesna. Uh, uh, will we covered this a little bit, but who do we think about neoadjuvant therapy for?
2: So neoadjuvant therapy is good for locally advanced or inoperable tumors. So again, your inflammatory, your N2, N3, or your T4 lesions. Uh, or... Think about neoadjuvant therapy for tumors that are too large relative to the rest of the breast for breast conservation therapy and the patient requ- uh, requests breast conservation therapy.
0: Good. Okay. So we've covered chemotherapy. Let's move on to radiotherapy. Uh, so, um, a- again, we've covered it, but what's the benefit of radiation therapy with the breast conservation?
1: So whole breast radiation decreases local recurrence and improves survival. After lumpectomy, whole breast radiation with boost to tumor bed It's strongly recommended. And do you give uh, your radiotherapy before or after chemotherapy? You give it after the chemotherapy. Okay. And we'll
0: hear sometimes about doing uh, radiation to the the regional nodal basin. Uh, What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. So for women with four or more positive lymph nodes, radiation to the supraclavicular, infraclavicular, and axillary lymph nodes is often recommended. And if the cancer is in the central to inner area of the breast, then radiation also may be recommended to the internal mammary lymph node. Uh, For women who have one to three positive tumors, the role of radiation is more likely to fall into the gray zone and will depend on the individual tumor characteristics.
0: Yeah. That's, again, this is a complex topic. And if you're anybody out there is a radiation oncologist, they're going to eat us alive because this is a very complex topic and it's not this simple. But again, for the boards, for me, what I would know is four more nodes gets a nodal basin, a boost radiation to the nodal basin. Um, in reality, again, I know it's way more complicated than that. Um, okay, how about uh, your, your patient, your 85, your 90-year-old patient who comes in with a breast cancer? What's the, the role of radiation in, in, in those older patients?
2: So if you have a woman who's age greater than 70 with clinically negative nodes and an ER-positive T1 breast cancer, then you might be able to get away with hormonal therapy, uh, lumpectomy, negative margins, but not have to do uh, radiation.
0: Yeah, and this is out of the NCCN guidelines. Again, this is your you know older patients uh, who undergo lumpectomy have negative margins. They have hormone receptor positive tumors that are small. In um, those patients, uh, you, you can sometimes get away without radiation and just do lumpectomy with hormonal therapy alone, Um uh, I I don't know if that's that's kind of getting in the weeds a little bit. It'd be unusual for something like that to show up on the app site, but it's important to know nonetheless. Um How about after a mastectomy? Who gets radiation after a mastectomy, Kevin?
1: So for patients who have had a mastectomy, they are recommended to have radiation to the chest wall and regional lymph nodes. If they have positive actually lymph nodes, as well as if they have tumors greater than five centimeters or have a positive margin,
0: yeah, so certainly positive margin is greater than five centimeters on the outside. I would answer um, they get some radiation to the chest wall and to the um, regional lymph nodes. Um, okay, we talked a little bit about hormonal therapy. Um, who gets uh, who gets hormonal therapy?
1: All hormone-positive tumors uh, should receive uh, five years of tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor for postmenopausal women. Perfect.
0: Okay. And what about uh, that that third marker, that HER2? So let's say they're HER2-positive. What's the treatment for that?
1: Uh, Trastuzumab, also known as Herceptin, for one year. Uh, for HER2-positive tumors. Yep. So, again, tamoxifen or
0: aromatase inhibitors, the treatment's five years for hormone receptor positive. Uh, Herceptin or trastuzumab uh, for one year for HER2-positive tumors. Um, Okay. Uh, Moving on a little bit. So, how about uh, inflammatory breast cancer? What is that and how do you want to manage it?
2: Yeah. So, inflammatory breast cancer is characterized by uh, rapid Diffuse involvement of the entire breast with cutaneous erythema and paw uh changes in the breast skin. And this is secondary to dermal lymphatic invasion with cancer cells. So, all of these are considered T4D tumors and therefore at least stage 3B. Uh, to treat these, start with chemo radiation up front. If the patient responds, then do a modified radical mastectomy.
0: Yeah. So I think this would fall under that locally advanced non-operable tumors initially. So these need neoadjuvant therapy. Chemo RADs first and then modified radical mastectomy is going to be the answer. Chemo RADs followed by modified radical mastectomy for inflammatory breast cancer. And this is going to be a picture question. So know what this looks like. Um, okay. Kevin, uh, Paget's disease of the breast. Uh, what is that? And what do you do with it?
1: So this is uh, patients that have eczematous changes with scaling and ulceration of the skin and nipple. Uh, this is a marker of underlying malignancies. These cancers are generally hormone receptor negative and HER2 positive. Uh, characteristically, the cells will have a clear cytoplasm and enlarged nuclei. So uh, this will be on the test, a patient that comes in with uh, some scaly ulcerating skin changes to the nipple, and they're going to ask you what you should do. This, sh- this should raise alarms, and you should uh, be aggressive with the workup of this. And how do you want to treat? So if it qualifies for uh, breast conservation therapy based on what we discussed, uh, they can undergo breast conservation therapy. However, mastectomy, including uh, the nipple areolar complex plus a sentinel lymph node biopsy is probably the safest answer. Right. I'd make sure you know how this, this is another one that's,
0: that could possibly be a picture question. So no, make sure you know the difference between, you know, patch disease and inflammatory breast cancer, how those appear. Um, and for these, yeah, uh, I think mastectomy with the nipple areolar complex and the sentinel lymph node uh, is the, is the safest answer uh, for the boards. Um, okay. Woo. Uh, not seen often, but breast cancer in men. What do you want to think about?
2: Yeah, so this is ra- very rare. Less than 1% of breast cancer. Uh, risk factors include a strong family history, Klinefelter's disease, and BRCA2 mutation. Uh, that accounts for 15% of breast cancer in men.
0: Yeah, and once you once you diagnose this, like said, it's rare. It, it's it's treated like it's treated similar to breast cancer in women. Um, okay, we talked briefly about this uh, a little bit before, but breast cancer in pregnancy, uh, Kevin, how do you manage breast cancer during pregnancy?
1: Right. So first trimester, the patient is going to get a modified radical mastectomy. And why is that? Uh, because they cannot undergo uh, post-op radiation.
0: Yeah, the radiation and really that early, the, the chemotherapy as well, um, uh, is is problematic. Okay, so let's talk about second and third trimester.
1: So if this is a late second in, uh, or third trimester, breast conservation can be used. Uh, the sentinel lymph node with a modified isotope dosing and then post-op chemotherapy and post-delivery breast radiation.
0: Yep, so first trimester, modified radical mastectomy, late second, third trimester, you can do breast conservation therapy uh you you do the you can do a sentinel lift node you have to use a modified isotope um the chemotherapy can be given during late second and third uh trimester and then after delivery they'll undergo the radiation therapy
1: and this is you know contrary to what you think you do use the radioisotope for the sentinel lymph node, and you do not use methylene blue. Methylene blue is contraindicated in, in pregnant patients. Absolutely. So, uh,
0: the, yeah, it's a little counterintuitive, but methylene blue, no. In pregnancy, Uh, the radiotracer is okay with the modified isotope dosing. Okay, so that's a quick down-and-dirty review of breast disease uh, for the ab site. Um, that should help you out, get you a lot of points, hopefully. So let's move right into our quick hits. Uh, so Kevin, patient presents with a dominant breast mass. What's the next
1: step? Imaging, bilateral mammography, and consider ultrasound depending on the age of the patient.
0: Yep, imaging. So that's a common question. You have a breast mass they'll they'll want to they'll want you to do some kind of biopsy, take it to the OR. Just back up, slow down, get get some imaging, and again. Younger women under 35, it's going to be older sound. Uh, over 35, it's going to be bilateral mammography. Okay, Wu, concerning lesion on mammography, the core needle biopsy returns normal. What's your next step?
2: Yeah, so think discordant findings, and so go on to do an excisional biopsy.
0: Right, exactly. Uh, Kevin, uh, what are the most common sites for breast cancer metastasis?
1: So it's the bone, lung, brain, and liver.
0: Um, what about, so let's say... Um, you get, uh, you have a lesion and it's 0.1 millimeter of tumor cell deposits.
1: Yeah. Isolated tumor cell deposits are not considered a metastatic disease.
0: Right. So that's not M1 disease. Those isolated tumor deposits of less than 0.2 millimeters. Um, okay. BRCA1 and BRCA2, we talked about it. So uh, what are your, what other cancers are those patients at risk for? And what is the cumulative risk of those cancers,
2: Wu? Yeah. So that's breast and ovarian. So for BRCA1, it's roughly 65% breast. For ovary, is 40%. For BRCA2, it's 45% for breast and 10% for ovary. Right. So BRCA1 has a higher um,
0: risk of ovarian cancer, 40%. BRCA2, uh, a little bit lower risk of breast cancer, um, a little bit lower risk of uh, ovary cancer. BRCA1 is first at everything. It,
1: it's the highest risk of breast cancer and the highest risk of there ovarian cancer. There you go. Cancer. Uh, What are the side effects of tamoxifen, Kevin? So, very common question, thromboembolism, uh, DVT, PE, and then uh, there is a risk of uterine cancer. Okay. And Wu,
0: we talked about uh, bone being a common common metastasis
2: for breast cancer. Why is that? Yeah, that's because of Batson's plexus. That's a valveless venous system uh, that allows direct metastasis to the bone. Okay, Kevin, you have a
0: patient that is referred to you that has a tender palpable cord on the outer quadrant of the breast. What is it, and how do you treat it?
1: Uh, so, likely this is Mondor's disease, uh, so it could be uh, superficial thrombophlebitis is the clinical name for it. Uh, the treatment would be NSAIDs. That being said, you want to make sure uh, that these patients, you know, if they're at the appropriate age, uh, that they should be undergoing mamm- mammography screening. They should have all of that um in order to to make sure that there's no underlying malignancy.
0: Sure. And Kevin, I'm going to stick with you on this one since you're a resident vascular expert. So you have a patient who has chronic lymphedema for 10 years following an axillary dissection and now presents with a dark purple lesion on the upper arm. What is it?
1: So this is a lymphangiosarcoma uh, called Stuart-Treves syndrome. And uh, this is a very serious lesion that needs urgent surgery. Yep. Stuart Treves, or Treves,
0: Treves syndrome. I'm not sure. Uh, lymphangiosarcoma. So,
1: okay. Now that wraps it up. That, and, and that is a good one. Another picture question. So yeah, absolutely. Go
0: Google that and look at the pictures. Lymphangiosarcoma or Stuart Treves syndrome. Look that one up. Uh, that does it. That's a review of breast for the ab site and the general surgery boards.